Uh, do turn to Matthew uh, chapter 22. Uh, if you've got a Bible in your laps, I think the page number's in the, in the leaflet. I didn't, uh, didn't have a look, so I can't remember. Um, but do turn there. We're, we're coming to the end of our series in Matthew. Um, we've been doing it over the last uh, few months, a little breaks in between. Um, and really, it's been a conflict uh, between the religious leaders of Jesus' day and Jesus himself, a conflict of authority. And this uh, morning, we come to the last uh, passage in that conflict, and really it's the climax. Let me read for us, and then I'll pray, and then we'll dig in. Matthew 20, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think of the Christ, about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, so I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord... How is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we come before you in humbleness, knowing that unless you work in our hearts, unless your spirit comes, our time is wasted, our preaching is wasted, our listening is wasted. So we pray, Spirit, come and feed us. We pray that the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight. And the meditation of all our hearts to reflect and think about this passage I will be pleasing in your sight as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know when you're always reaching at a climax of a blockbuster film, um, because you have one last collective of the enemy coming together. Uh, Lord of the Rings got the orcs lining up, leering. Uh, Harry Potter, you've got the evil wizards gathering together, sneering. And so here we have the Pharisees gathering together against Jesus. We're in a conflict of authority. It's been rumbling on uh, since chapter 21, verse 23, when they challenged Jesus. By what authority do you do the things that you do? And they've been trying to trip him up, trick him, make him tangled in his words, undermine him, cast him down and lift themselves up. And today we reach the climax, the end. And the heart of the climax this climax, we find two critical things at the heart of the Christian faith. Uh, the law, verse 34, 40, and the Christ, verse 41 to the end. The law, how we are summoned uh, to live by Jesus, by God, uh, his commandments. You want to think about the law, the nucleus of the law would be the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, all the way down to do not covet. And the Christ, of course, we talk about Jesus and how we are summoned to respond uh, to him. As Christians, of course, we must be sure that we understand these things. They are the cornerstones of our faith, what God commands us and how he summons us to respond to Jesus. Of course, we can't say everything today about it. We've got 25 minutes. 
but it does shed some light for us, some elementary light, I'd even say, on our understanding of them. And if you're not a Christian, I don't know everyone here, lovely to have you, but if you're not a Christian, it's critical you understand what Scripture teaches us about the law and about Jesus. It's critical for deciding whether or not to become a Christian. So law first, verse 34 to 40. And one point here, Jesus summons us to a life of love. Jesus summons us to a life of love. The Pharisees gather primarily, primarily to, to defeat Jesus, to, to prove their authority over him. They've heard that, they, that he's defeated the Sadducees, Sadducees who they've kind of been allied with to try and defeat Jesus, but they're also enemies of, so they'd love to be the ones who triumph over Christ um, because Sadducees failed, and so they're a one-up uh, on them. And I feel it's similar to what we've had in passages previous, the gathering, to test him, to trick him, and to see what he's made of. Um, and so one of them steps forward, a lawyer, and says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, why this? Question, well, the Pharisees considered themselves law experts. So the word lawyer, not lawyers and someone who goes to court necessarily, but a law, lawyer, someone who's an expert uh, in the law. And so they're inviting Jesus onto their playing fields. Come on, Jesus, challenge us. See, see if you can play with us. Now, how's it a test? Well, I think it's quite hard to tell. Maybe they're confident that whatever Jesus says, because they're experts, they'll be able to criticise him and tear him apart. Maybe it's just more genuine. You can get that impression in other Gospels that the person asking this question actually has a genuine interest in what Christ is going to say, what it's going to teach. But what I want to focus on is not the motive of the Pharisees here, we'll come to that in the second half, um, but Jesus' answer, what does he say? Because it has much to teach us. Jesus takes, if you like, a highlighter, a yellow highlighter, and goes to the Old Testament, first five books of the Bible, uh, where the majority of God's commands are found, and highlights two verses for us, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, that's love the Lord your God, and Leviticus 19, verse 8, that's love your neighbour as yourself. It's not making up new rules. This is genuinely part of the law that God gave the Israelite people in the Old Testament. So the heart of the most significant books on them. Um, it's just worth saying that Jesus is not introducing new teaching to us. He says, love God, love your neighbour. That's what God has been telling us right from the beginning. It's always been true. It's helping us understand it and see it more clearly. First great commandment. Verse 37, look down at me. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Above all, Jesus says, we are summoned to abandon our all in adoration to God. Our mind, heart and soul, our mind, the way we think, not just our thoughts themselves, but the way we perceive the world, our hearts, our desires, like the heart in scripture is often the seat of our will and what we want to do with our lives. Our soul goes down to the right, right down to the kind of basic level of who you are. You ship everything away, you are your soul. Jesus says, direct your lives in such a way that every particle of you, every thought, every desire is devoted to God so that to know him uh, to hear him, to listen to him, to serve him, to look at him, behold him, to do everything out of a desire to please him consumes you. So that is the great commandment, so that when you wake up in the morning, you wake up in order to dwell with God and to enjoy his presence. And when you go to sleep, you go to sleep with the goal of being satisfied and content that you have done that, that you have given him everything 
in the day, whatever your day has looked like, whatever work you do, however many kids you have to look after, you've given him everything. To say to him, I love you, Lord. You are my God. I have no good thing apart from you. The first commandment, the great commandment that Jesus is that. The second like it, if that wasn't enough. There's a second like it. It's not just one great commandment, but two. Um, there's a logical order to them. Love your Lord your God comes first. It's primary. And from it flows the second. You can't have the second without the first. Um, but we must behold both of them. We mustn't forget either. We fall into mistakes if we do. But both are of the greatest importance. For some are not only to abandon ourselves in devotion and adoration and service to the Lord our God, but to cherish my neighbour. You shall love your neighbour. And very helpfully it says, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. That teaches exactly the kind of love that we're called to give to our neighbour. It tells me exactly what is required of me as I go about my uh, work, as I shop, as I live, as I play my sports. And my neighbour, uh, neighbour, by the way, all those people in those situations, neighbour's not just anyone in the world, it's people you interact with in your life. It says, love them as yourself, to be keenly, as keenly aware of their needs as I am of my own. And I'm very aware of my needs. You're very aware of your needs. He says, be as aware of them as you are of other people's. He sympathises deeply with other people's problems as I sympathise with my own. And I do sympathise a lot with my own problems. To be active, as active in helping other people in their lives as I am as active in helping myself. In some, to be as diligent in seeking their welfare, your neighbour, their good, their flourishing, their joy as I am in seeking my own. And even to the cost of my own, I could say, look at Christ, how do you love his neighbour? He died for them. He gave himself up out of love for them. Our culture loves to say, has, has, says to us, love yourself. You know, the book by J.J. Myers, entitled, and me before you, i.e. my decisions, what I want from my life, before yours. And Christ comes to us in the law and says, not me before you, but you before me. Jesus summons us to a life of love. And what light does that throw for us on the law? Well, look at verse 40. He says, on these two commandments depend, depend all the law and the prophets. In one sense, the prophets, although it doesn't capture everything the prophets are doing, but in one sense, the prophets are people who interpret and apply the law, an extension to the law in places. All of law, all of the commandments, Depend on these two. They hang upon it. Children, if you get a towel, children, and you hang it on a hook on the back of your door, and you take away the hook, what's going to happen? Do you know? Take away the hook, what's going to happen to the towel? It's going to fall down in a heap on the floor. Absolutely. And Jesus is saying the law hangs upon, it rests upon, it hinges on, it depends on. These two commandments, but like if you build Jenga, Tower of Jenga, and swipe out the bottom, it will fall down. Without these two, the commands of God fall. In that sense, the commandments aren't merely the greatest among many options, as if all God's commands are distinct. These two kind of are the highest, but the other ones are, are important as well in different senses. No, uh, it's more like, more like a river, and these two commands are, are the spring 
and from which the law flows. You wouldn't have the spring, you wouldn't have a river at all. It depends upon it. And it shows us the purpose of all God's commandments, even the Ten Commandments, of all God's law and the reason for its existence. It's to teach me, isn't it? It's to teach me to love my God. It's to teach me to love my neighbour. It's not the only thing the law does, but it highlights it for me. In that sense, these two commandments can act um, a bit like the eyepieces in a pair of glasses. You've got a pair of glasses, you've got two lenses, one command for each, put them on. And the law comes into focus and we begin to understand what it's really about for the first time, begins to make sense. And it transforms, when we put the glasses on, these two commandments on, it transforms the way we see God's commands. I wonder how, how you feel about the commandments of God. We love to talk about the grace of God, don't we? How he lavishes his love upon us. And that's primary. And we'll get to that in the second half. But how do you feel about the, the commands of God? But if you're not a Christian, how do you feel about God's commands to you? The Ten Commandments. Uh, maybe we, we have subtle feelings that they're restrictive. They put limits around me that I resist. I can't sleep with whoever I want to sleep with. I have to honour my parents. I feel resentful. You don't know what my life is like. You don't know what my parents are like. Or maybe we feel like they're harsh and domineering. The negative. Don't do this. Do that. Or perhaps it's dull. I look at commands. Do not lie. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. It's just cast. It's quite a good thing, but it's boring. Or maybe if you've been a Christian for a while and you've heard God's law spoken to you time and time again, probably from the front here, it just feels like a burden on your back. You feel like a, a soldier who's got a, a sack of rocks being directed uh, this way and that all day long, never ceasing. You're tired. You're tired of the law. You put on the glasses and what appears dried up, a dead brown springs into life. Uh, the law opens up uh, in beauty, like a, like a bud being warmed uh, by the rising sun. It opens up with fragrance and colour. Because uh, we realise that God doesn't give me the law to restrict me because uh, he, wants, wants he wants to be cruel or harsh. He doesn't give me the law to crush me or burden me or spoil our fun or make life boring. I know he wants me to flourish and he knows for me to flourish. I need to learn to love. I flourish as I learn to love the Lord my God of all my heart, soul, mind, indeed strength, which isn't in this passage, but in other Gospels. Uh, as I look to God and I see in his beauty and goodness that all I need for the rest and joy my life cries out for. I flourish as I learn to love my neighbour as myself, as I learn to give myself up for the honour, the dignity, the worth of my fellow human. And he gives us commands because we're not naturally good at it. At loving. I need to learn. In that sense, the Christian is always at school. He's always in Christ's school. And the joy of it, though, is I can learn. I have the law. We have a teacher. I might be blind. I might not be able to see very clearly. But the law is given to guide me, like a guide dog for a blind man. And suddenly, you kind of understand. Maybe you've never understood this before. In the Psalms, David cries out, I love your law, O Lord. Honour and meditate day and night. And so I begin to sense why that could possibly be true, because it teaches me to love like nothing else can. But of course, something else also happens. You may have felt it already as I've been going through these commands to you. 
I certainly felt it in preparing. I even felt it as I've been preaching it. Uh, But it, it exposes me, doesn't it? It exposes my deep lack before God and my guilt before him. Because the law isn't just there to guide me. It's to show me the righteousness that is required of me to dwell with God and to be in his presence. It's easy to think, maybe you thought this, uh, that it's easy to keep God's commands. It's easy. And you think of yourself as a morally upright person, particularly if you're not a Christian. Why do I need Christ? Why do I need a savior? I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't committed adultery. As a Christian yourself, you know know you're sinful because scripture tells you you're sinful, but you struggle to feel it. I don't really feel that sinful. Uh, Let me try and draw an analogy for you. We're a bit like children when we think like that in a swimming pool, uh, but at a shallow end. We think we can swim because our feet are touching the bottom and the water's only waist high. What these great commandments do is they widen and deepen God's law. So I truly understand what is required of me is to love the Lord my God. And I know I don't do that of all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love my neighbor as myself. And I know I certainly don't do that. Myself often comes first. And what happens is the ground is going to falls away. I find myself struggling and floundering. And it's over that when I thought I could swim, I could keep God's commands, I find I can't keep them at all. I can't swim. The significant problem for all of us, whether you're a believer or not a believer, is that I do not love God as I should. I have a lack, a lack of love. I realize I'm in desperate need of rescue as a result, like a drowning man at the deep end of the swimming pool. I need a saviour. I need a Christ. And that's, by the way, one of the most significant things the Lord does for us initially. It pushes us towards Christ by showing us how we are not righteous. I'm deeply aware of my needs. As I cry out, Lord Jesus, save me, or I die, or I drown. As to Christ himself, our attention is now turned in verses 41 to 46. We're summoned to deliver a life of love, and Jesus summons us to life with him as Lord. Our eyes go back to the conflict. We've lost sight of it momentarily. We find Jesus turning the tables. You challenged me, he says, on my understanding of scripture. Now let me challenge you. Let's see what you understand. He says, what do you think about the Christ? That's a critical question. A question we should all be asking. What do we think of Christ? What do we make of Jesus? And the Pharisees say, son of David. Oh, whose son is he, sorry? They say to him, the son of David. And that's a good answer in many ways. hundred texts that could go to to prove that the coming Christ, the Messiah, the promised figure in the Old Testament that God is going to send to rule them and save them, is going to be the son of David. And then he sets them this puzzle, verse 43, quoting a psalm, Psalm 110, written by David himself, i.e. the one who Messiah is the son of, uh, prophesying about the Lord Jesus. And he quotes this verse, the Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And he poses them this question, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Verse 45, essentially the question is, how can the son... Be Lord above the Father. Have authority over him. It defies, if you like, the natural order, our natural instinct, our natural understanding of authority. But David could say to his son that he will be Lord. Jesus will be Lord. And the paradox is only resolved when we're prepared to confess that Jesus is more greater than David. He's not merely David's son, 
but also God's son, the divine son of David. The conflict began with the Pharisees challenging Jesus' authority in chapter 21, verse Chapter 21, verse 23. And Jesus ends by establishing his authority by saying, I have authority because I'm not merely David's son, but God's son. He should have known it. It's there in the scriptures. And we know Jesus is making a claim to being God's son or being greater than merely a human here because he's already accepted the title earlier, chapter 21, verse 9. Title, son of David. So we know he's talking about son of David. He's talking about himself. And the Pharisees know that as well. Why this veiled way? Why not explicit? Why don't you say, I listen, I'm God's son, better baby. Uh, well, I think if you've made the, the outright claim here and there, they'd arrest him for blasphemy. They'd take him straight away uh, to his death, and he's not ready for that yet. The time hasn't come. Uh, but I think it's still very clever. The, the scriptures are the authority uh, for the Pharisees. And so by using the scriptures to prove his own authority, that he is God's son, they have no grounds to stand upon. He's taken away their grounds uh, to respond, and they don't respond. No one's able to answer him a word. They can't fault his interpretation. He's got the scriptures right. He's understood them where they haven't. And they can't do anything. They're silenced. It's easy to see as well why he picks this verse. Because the Pharisees have set themselves up as the enemies of Christ. And so he says to them, the Lord said to my Lord, you know, you know you're talking about me here, sit on my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. This is what God has said about me. God's promise to me as his son is that he will defeat my enemies from before me and you oppose me. You resist me. What do you find yourself doing and rejecting me? You find yourself opposing the very God that you've confessed to love. So be warned, he's telling them. Be wise. Have me as your Lord. And someone goes out to us as well. Have him as your Lord. Looking at Christ sat at the right hand of God the Father as Lord throws light on the rest of the world. It's often said, isn't it? I don't be on the wrong side of history. You better get on board with our liberal, our progressive, our neo-atheist, anti-religion, anti-Bible, anti-Jesus movement. You believe the Bible? Don't be on the wrong side of history. You believe Jesus teaching on sexuality? Don't be on the wrong side of history. God sits in heaven. And he laughs. He says, no, you, you are on the wrong side of history. I've said Jesus at my right hand as Lord, and I will defeat all his enemies from before him. If you are not for him, if you don't have him as Lord, then you are against him. So summons goes out to all of us. Have Christ as Lord. His enemies will not stand. Of course, it's wonderfully encouraging to look around the world as a professing believer who has confessed to have Jesus as Lord. So that regardless of the mocking world we live in, or the increasing hostility that we find ourselves subjected to, or even that right persecution that one day, even in this country, we might endure, that Christ has been set as Lord. That is one of our foundational hopes, to be with Christ, is to be on the winning side. One day, 
God will have defeated all his enemies and will reign with him because you've come under him. And a kingdom where there won't be any more mocking or persecution or suffering, no pain or sorrows or tears. They all have passed away. It shows life in the world we live in. God has set Christ at the right hand, at his right hand. And also, I throw his light on how we now should live. Okay, we talked about that already, how it is we are to pursue lives that God commands us to live. And that framework of loving God and loving our neighbour helps us understand all of God's commands. But we come in our lives under Christ as the one who rules us, who commands us as our king. But also in Psalm 110, if we had time to go there, we would. But Psalm 110, turn there if you like in your own time or um, later. And we see that God's not only set Christ as king who defeats his enemies, but also made him a priest uh, after the order of Melchizedek, i.e. a priest who, who's going to be a priest forever, a king priest who has a solution uh, to my great problem, uh, to my lack of love. So as Christ, as Lord and King, uh, we know him uh, uh, as the one who commands us. And he commands us to be law keepers, doesn't he? To pursue the great commandments. Love the Lord your God, not just to treat them as something nice, as an optional, uh, but to pursue them. Uh, but as Saviour, as, as my high priest, he dies on the cross to pay for my law breaking. He commands me to be a law keeper and then dies for my law breaking. So that when we combine them, our great king priests, we discover him calling us to a life of love, but saying, look, I'm your Lord. I've paid for your law breaking. I've paid for your sin. Your guilt is taken away. I've shed your blood, my blood, so that your failure is dealt with. If you come to me as Lord, I'll continue to forgive you and cleanse you and help you and to be a law keeper. And suddenly when we're, we're taking Christ as Lord and come under him, we look again at the law and we see it not something that causes us to drown and flounder, uh, but rather something that, that gives us great joy. Our joy, if you like, when we first discovered the finding that God's commands are leading us to a life of love is fanned back into flame. God doesn't call us to a life of slavery, but to a life of affection. And Christ himself it is a law that comes to us by his spirit to invoke in us longings. Longings to be able to look at God's law and say, not, oh, I've broken them again. But longings to be able to look at them and say, oh, I've kept them. And with integrity, say that. I love the Lord my God of all my heart, soul, mind and strength. I love my neighbour as myself. Isn't that what you long to be able to say? To not have that feeling of failure rise in the pit of your stomach. It may feel like a very distant, impossible prospect, but that is what Christ, as our Lord, is doing for us and what he will complete for us in his kingdom and eternity. And in that sense, not just our longings, but our hope is fanned into flame. That he will, throughout all my days, make me someone who is better able to keep all of God's commandments, that more and more my thoughts and my feelings and my desires are abandoned to God in adoration. And more and more we consider ourselves less and less able to say to people around us, ye are before me. One day, one day, one day, Christ as our Lord 
who has saved us from our law breaking, will one day be, one day make us what we're meant to be, which is perfect law keepers. That is what awaits us in eternity. Summons to a life of love. Uh, summons uh, to have Christ as your Lord. Let me pray for us and then will come up and we'll sing our next song. Our uh, Father, um, I praise you first of all. This is uh, your command to us uh, to love, to love our neighbour as ourselves, to love you with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. Please be teaching us more and more what that means. Confess our vision is often clouded. Pray that through your law you'll be showing us what it's like to live a life of love. Thank you that Christ, as our Lord, has died for us. Forgive us. Thank you that he comes to us by his spirit and to invoke in us a greater desire, a greater ability, a greater strength to be able to keep your law. So we pray this week as we go out from here, we'll go out as those consumed with desire uh, to keep uh, your law, but depending entirely upon Christ, our Lord, and not on ourselves to do that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.